Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, a.k.a. problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high-quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. In the daily drama of the Trump administration, contacting your representatives is more important than ever. Today, we're talking with Emily Ellsworth, an expert on effectively making your voice heard. Sarah from the left is on vacation. It's Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I am so excited that Emily Ellsworth is joining me today. Emily had a viral tweet storm earlier this year on contacting your representatives. You'll hear lots more about that in our discussion. Before we dive into that, I want to remind you that Sarah and I are so excited to go to Nashville and partner with Red Pepper for its Hustle and Grow series. We will be there on August 15th doing a workshop and then a live podcast, our first live podcast ever. Tickets are are on sale, you can go to redpepperpantsuitpolitics.splashthat.com. All of this information will be in the show notes. There's a countdown clock on the page to get your tickets, so please go over there and uh, get settled because we're excited to come to Nashville and see everyone. 
I'm here with Emily Ellsworth. Emily, I'm so excited to talk to you. I've been following you since, well, the world has, right? When you had this viral tweet storm right after the election about contacting your representative, which we'll get into in a minute. But beyond your um, Call the Halls guide and all the things that we're going to spend a lot of time on, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are? Sure. Um, I'm also really excited to be here. So thank you so much for uh, making this happen. Um, So about me, basically, I so the reason why the tweets happened was because originally my my first career was in politics. Uh, Namely, I worked for two congressional representatives here in Utah, where I'm from, uh, for about a total of six years. And in those offices, I worked locally. I didn't work in D.C., so I wasn't doing a lot with legislation. Um, Pretty much all I was doing was constituent work. So I was talking to and meeting with constituents uh, either on the phone or in my office or wherever they were. And that's what I did for six years. Um, And then I got a little burned out and decided to try something new and went into marketing and kind of left politics behind. I decided that was a part of my life that I was just going to let be gone and I wasn't going to worry about it anymore and kind of went into hibernation until the election started. So that's kind of where um, I've been for the past, you know, I I guess I started in politics in 2009 and left in about 2014. Uh, But my my whole life up to that point, I've been involved in politics in one form or another. I worked for a lot of campaigns, done a lot of work for um, the local Republican Party here in Utah. Um, I'm registered Republican still. But uh, that's kind of, you know, I've never been able to really get away from it. It's always kind of found me in one form or another. Uh, The the political bug has bit me and I've, I've just never been able to quite shake it. And like many women, you were ripped from hibernation, right, on politics Mm -hmm. through this election. Yeah. Well, so let's get into it because we I know that you have been uh, prolific in tweeting about lots of political issues uh, since that tweet storm, especially health care. And I think it's hard to edit for this episode because so much has happened since our last episode. But I think health care is the place to start. So we had a really dramatic week. We had this motion to proceed and Senator McCain comes back from his treatment in Arizona to give this really dramatic speech before voting yes for the motion to proceed. And then we had Senators Collins, Murkowski, and McCain joining with Democrats to defeat Republicans' plans in the Senate, which is all old news by now. What I would like to talk about in a lot of ways because of your expertise, Emily, is the role of constituents in making this happen. If you listen to Senator Murkowski or Senator Collins, who I think are the heroes here, I appreciate Senator McCain, but these women have been steadfast in the face of a lot of um, (laughs) real pressure and harassment from their colleagues and the president. Um, It sounds like they've really been listening to people and the stories they're hearing made the difference. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's been really interesting because I I think that depending on which way the news cycle is swinging, uh, people either think that the stuff I've written is really poignant and on point, uh, or they're like, you're completely up in the night. Like, this is not something that works. Like, no one listens to us. Our representatives don't listen to us. And that's the problem. And I think the answer probably lies somewhere in the middle of those two things. Uh, And it really just depends on 
which representative we're talking about here. Because as you mentioned, you know, Murkowski and Collins clearly have done some deep dive into how their constituents feel and how the country feels as a whole and brought that insight into their vote. Um, and, and I'm hearing, you know, stuff from other representatives. Uh, I won't name names. Well, maybe I will late, a little later. <laughs> but <laughs> that just don't do a very good job of listening. They kind of have their minds made up already and they know what they're going to do. And uh, it seems like, you know, constituent opinion doesn't matter as much. And that's that's true. Um, but I, it was interesting that the night of that, that, that vote, I was getting a lot of people that said, um, you know, what was the point of all of this? We haven't been able to stop anything. And I, I had to step back and say, look, you've got to recognize how much you've already done. Mm. The fact that this vote that they were voting on, you know, basically to push this bill to conference, which was an incredibly watered down version. It wasn't even an actual repeal of Obamacare, which is what they ultimately wanted. And that vote failed bipartisan, uh, you know, to, to just do a straight, uh, you know, repeal of Obamacare. That vote failed. And I think that a lot of that is just due to the amount of noise and the amount of attention that people are paying. And that's a great victory in and of itself. And even if that um, motion to proceed had passed, I would still consider so much of what had happened a great success because of that. Because, you know, you have a a party that now controls uh, both houses of Congress and the, the executive branch, and they're still not able to get done what they basically have campaigned on for the last eight years. And they've had to sit back and kind of restructure and reformulate. This happens a lot, you know, when you, as that pendulum swings and the, uh, you know, the House and the Senate go to whichever party, you know, as that swings, that kind of happens. It's a lot easier to dissent than it is to actually make the rules. And I think the Republican Party is finding that out. Um, and, you know, I I was just astounded at the, the number of people that were continuing to call, that were making their voice heard, that were encouraging their neighbors to call, and who were doing it and just, you know, engaging in a really thoughtful manner. Uh, here in Utah, we have a few um, activists that are friends of mine uh, that, you know, I've been following who have done just a lot of work on this. It didn't sway Hatch or Lee. Uh, it, who are Utah senators, but in the in the end, it didn't sway them to vote uh, against the against anything really in the in the healthcare law. But what it did was it really raised awareness, and um, that kind of I think groundswell across the country is is a huge contributor to what happened last week. And I, I, I just don't think that would have happened. I agree with you, and I hope that it opens the door to a more sophisticated conversation about healthcare. Because people are being so incredibly vulnerable and sharing their extremely personal stories about how these laws impact them, it seems like we might be able to move beyond I hate Obamacare as the driving motivation for legislation. There's clearly not a mandate for that anymore. Like there just is not a mandate to repeal completely. I think that people recognize that, you know, and I remember I I was listening to your episode last week that, you know, just people, um, I think are going to take a more nuanced approach to this and kind of recognize, you know, maybe we need to sit down and realize, okay, what do we actually not like about Obamacare? Like what is legitimately not working and what things can we fix? Yeah, it's so funny because my husband and I were talking about this today. I was watching Tom Price 
on Meet the Press this morning. Mm-hmm. And I'll just be honest and say that Tom Price just really drives me crazy. Everything he <laughs> says, I think you do not mean that. But I'm listening to him talk about the failure of the individual markets. And I said to my husband, you know, the funny thing is, that's my favorite part of the Affordable Care Act. My yeah. favorite thing that President Obama tried to do was to create a place for people who do not have employer-sponsored plans to buy insurance. And yes, those plans are expensive. And yes, there are limited carriers in those markets, especially by geography. But all Mm -hmm. this talk of failure, failure, failure is a little bit disingenuous because they're catching balls that were just being dropped before. Now, can it be better? Yes. And can the overall systemic impact on the system improve? Yes. But I think that they're selling a little bit of a, a false assessment of the big picture by honing in on those individual exchanges. Yeah, absolutely. And here in Utah, we have a lot of very rural counties that uh, were affected by the individual markets in that maybe they only had one plan to choose from. Um, you know, that's, however, in a lot of those places, that's one more plan than they had, you know, five, six years ago. Um, and there's, you know, something to be said about the penalty, uh, you know, and, and that kind of how that all works together. But, you know, there are plenty of things that a lot of people like, for instance, in, in my household, we really like the uh, removal of pre-existing conditions because mm-hmm. my husband uh, is a brain cancer survivor. He got brain cancer when he was 23. Uh, and we were, had only been married a little over a year. And I mean, that was, how in the world do you plan for that? Like, that's not a thing that he did anything wrong. Um, and so he's been, uh, in remission now for the last seven years. But if under the old law, uh, even if, you know, let's say I'd I'd had employer healthcare, employer sponsored healthcare coverage. And I lost it because I you know, lost my job or something like that. And then let's say I couldn't get another job with employer-sponsored health care coverage for six months. At that point, if I did get another job and my employer, their, their, their insurance uh, carrier could deny my husband uh, coverage, even if I had employer-sponsored health, you know, health care. And under, this, under our, uh, the Affordable Care Act, that went away. And I knew that no matter what, if I could find a job that had employer-sponsored healthcare coverage, we would be covered. And his, you know, yearly MRIs and important things that we need to make sure that he continues to stay in remission, you know, are covered. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Is he well today? Yeah, he's he's been in remission for the past seven years, and he's been doing very well. So. That is awesome. I'm yeah. Wow. You know, I think there are so many people who feel that way. It's kind of um, remarkable to me that Republicans can't find a message around this that holds space for the parts of the Affordable Care Act that really worked. And something that I've been thinking about is, you know, they talk about wanting to bring premiums down and mm-hmm. get more people covered. Okay. If those are the goals, you can... And I know this is a little bit inconsistent with conservative principles, so I'll get to that. But you can add without subtracting. I feel like the most effective thing for Republicans to do right now would be to work with Democrats to keep pushing forward on things that actually might make a difference in the overall marketplace and then go back and start taking things away that are hopefully rendered superfluous 
buy those additions, right? Because yeah. if you make insurance more affordable overall and you make healthcare more affordable overall, then maybe you don't need the Medicaid expansions anymore, or maybe you can ratchet that down some, right? But you've got to, I feel like at this point with the system in place as it is, you're going to have to prove out your concept before you can start slashing away. Yeah, agreed. And I think also there's, you can make something less complex that still works. Um, I think, you know, remembering back from, because I, I worked for Congress as uh, in the Affordable Care Act was being debated and passed. And I remember a big part of what my former boss had a hard time with was just how complex and how many different government agencies it added complexity to and how many more regulations it added and those types of things. And so I think there's something to be said about looking at it and saying, how can we simplify this to maybe you don't have to necessarily increase the government involvement, but let's just like streamline this a little more and find some market-based solutions that are actually going to work and kind of include that in the law so you're still you know bringing about those market-based solutions that republicans love so much but we're not doing something that you know clearly like the cbo and everybody else and every patient advocacy organization in the country is saying this won't work it's like so that's weird that just seems so anti-republican to me <laughs> to go <laughs> against the to go against the american medical association and some of these groups that are incredibly nonpartisan. like let's just be honest here that like what they were doing, I don't, I have some theories about what happened to make that happen, to, to bring this on. But ultimately, like the, what they were doing was not in, in line with Republican values that I know, that's for sure. I completely agree with that. And I love what Susan Collins was saying on the Sunday shows that Congress doesn't do comprehensive well. So stop trying to do comprehensive and let's take little bites at it. And I do think that her bites would be in the direction of better solutions overall while leaving in place things that are working today or things that we don't have an answer for today. Yeah, absolutely. That brings up another thing, though, that I think people are concerned about. So President Trump has been very active on Twitter talking, I mean, basically threatening to speed up what he deems the failure of Obamacare. And I know some of our listeners are wondering, like, like, what's he able to do? And I think the answer is kind of a lot. One of the problems that I had with the Affordable Care Act is that it relied so much on administrative implementation. I think it was Rand Paul who was printing out all of the rules that had to be promulgated for a while and just taking pictures of like stacks and stacks of paper. And so Tom Price's department could do quite a bit to ensure that the system moves in a negative direction. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just... hate that this that the Republican Party has just become this machine to like make things fail. It just seems they they, they complain so much. This is a rant and you can take it out later if you want. But they complain so much about how, <laughs> Yeah, about how um government bureaucracy is killing everything and that government is so efficient. And then they get in power and they deliberately make government efficient. Yes. inefficient they deliberately make it inefficient to kill it and i'm like well you're 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 literally doing the thing you said you hate like you've become the villain in this in this story because you're not interested in actually streamlining and i just i don't understand you know if you have that much administrative leeway why would you use that for evil yes 
you know why you already have a majority in the house and the senate and the presidency make it count do something with that stop making it a thing that you can still use to bully the other party i think that they're they just won't stop until there are no democrats and that's just not realistic and i, I don't understand i i just don't get it well, and they're Tuesday. acting in a way that's going to mean there are a lot fewer Republicans, I think, because, you know, I'm not yeah. interested in supporting a party. I mean, Sarah says this all the time. I don't want to vote for people to run the government who hate the government. And I always say, no, 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 I don't hate the government. I just want to keep the government in a role that makes sense overall. But but Republicans are acting like people who hate the government right now. Yeah, indeed. And they also they um, they'll lose you know, people that are my age, millennials, yes, that are just sick of it. Like, we're just fed up. And I, you know, most of the millennials that I worked with on many of the, you know, in the offices that I worked for are no longer Republican. I'm one of the few that has stuck around and stuck with the party. And, you know, it's, it's just a fact of the matter that I can't imagine that's what, what has happened in my inner circles is you know, unique from what's happening across the country. Absolutely. So also in this crazy week, Emily, Reince Priebus, Godspeed, Reince Priebus, joining Sean Spicer in the hall of used tos for the Trump administration. And we have John Kelly taking his place as the chief of staff. I don't like this. And I'm just wondering what your take is. Um, You know, I, I have... So I, I got a text that said that Ryan's previous got axed. And my first thought was, man, I do not feel sorry for him. Yeah, I and I totally. feel I feel so much bitterness towards Ryan's previous because I feel like he had so many opportunities to reject what was going on and instead decided to just join the the train and to just go along with it because he wanted the power that I, I just, I looked at that and I was like, you know what? You deserved it. I, I just, I didn't feel bad at all, which to be honest, I kind of felt bad for Sean Spicer because I tend to feel bad for little lower level ish people. Um, in, in those situations, I recognize that like they, they make a choice and all of that, but my sympathies were kind of tweaked a little bit for Sean Spicer. Cause I see him as not very good at his job, but not necessarily a bad person, just like in a really, really bad situation and way over his head. Priva should have known better. And I have no sympathy for the fact that he should have seen this coming from a mile away and should have stopped it at the RNC level a long time ago. And, you know, I just kind of shrugged my shoulders. So, yes, I wrote about this on our patrons blog on Patreon. I just want to look at all these people because I feel the same way about Jeff Sessions. What do you think was going to happen, Jeff? Like, mm-hmm. I, I hate when I step back and say, look at the president belittling our attorney general. I despise that. I don't like yes. the example that it sets for humankind and our children. I don't, you know, I don't like anything about the disrespect for the office, the way it's going to jeopardize the Department of Justice's independence. But I also look at Jeff Sessions, who I find repugnant on a lot of levels, to be honest with you. And, but think, like, what did you expect? 
Donald Trump has shown over and over and over again. I mean, his son has a meeting with with this woman from Russia, and he's like, mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't know about that meeting. His own son. Like, he yeah. doesn't have anybody's back. So I agree. I don't feel sorry for Reince. And I think if Reince had been at all competent as the RNC chair, he would have gotten Jeb Bush and Chris Christie and John Kasich and Marco Rubio in a room and been like, all right, y'all, who's it going to be? It's just going to be one who leaves this table and the rest of yeah. us are going to be enthusiastic cheerleaders. Yep, I agree. And I think, I, I, you know, thinking now to what you said, I think I agree that what troubles me about it is just how many precedents and things that it kind of knocks in the dirt and the, and the uh, potential for future issues that it brings. Because it, it kind of just like now normalizes that we fire our chief of staff by a tweet. And I, I don't like that. Like, I hate that those things happen because it's just such a slap in the face to how that system is supposed to work and the professionalism of how that office is, is supposed to be and the perception that it gives, for instance, our allies globally that, man, we just cannot seem to get our executive branch together. Those things trouble me personally for previous don't care. But as yeah, as a systemic like issue, yeah, that's it's incredibly troubling. And I'm troubled by General Kelly in this seat. And here's why. No disrespect to him. I appreciate everyone who serves our country, and especially those who have served with the kind of, you know, distinguished track record that he has. However, this idea that he's going to come in and whip everything into shape, I think is absurd, especially when you consider that he's been at Homeland Security through the implementation of one of the worst and most ineffective executive orders we've ever seen. Like, John Kelly has been part of this travel ban, and this travel ban that was rolled out in the most amateur of ways that has been, you know, beaten down by the court system that's now tying up the court system and trying to figure out what the Supreme Court meant by its sort of you know, compromise take on where this is going. I mean, I think if John Kelly were the answer, we would have already seen some answers through his role at DHS. Yeah, I agree. And I think the problem is, and ultimately, like, the issue that every one of these people who deems, like, thinks it's okay to serve in the Trump administration, the fact is, is that there's no strategy in that office. The only strategy is chaos. That's, right. That's the all it's all about chaos and power. And it's it's how much power can Donald Trump consolidate that leads directly to him. There there just isn't any other strategy. There's no policy strategy. There's no way you can like make sense of this in a in a, in in the way that things traditionally have been done. So, even if he does try to whip it into shape, he won't last long. Because the only loyalty that Donald Trump cares about is loyalty to him. He only wants people who are incompetent. That's like th- that's what he does because he only wants people to have loyalty to him and not to anybody else who might be leading alongside him or with him or anything like that. I, I just imagine he gets incredibly jealous when someone who is competent at their job and is liked and just has to let, it, let them go. It's such a good point. I mean, again, with with no sympathy whatsoever for Reince, hearing people criticize Reince Priebus for not being able to execute the president's legislative agenda just makes me laugh because the president doesn't have a legislative agenda. No, there is none. 
Yeah. He has a laundry and, but list Ryan's, of campaign promises, but that's Ryan's it. Ryan should have known better. Like, just in my opinion, like, he should have known better. Like, the fact is, is that, like, it, it seems like everybody else can see this but him. And I had the same struggle as I went through the 2016 election. I joined up with a group called uh, Republican Women for Hillary, who, and they've now, uh, they've rebranded to Republican Women for Progress, and I'm on their board. And one of the things that I wrote for them and, you know, talked a lot about when I was doing that work during the 2016 election was that you just, I feel like my Republican colleagues want so badly to control and harness Donald Trump's charisma and energy, and it's not possible. And until they realize that and come to grips with it and face it head on, I don't know what hope there is. Like, they're just... They just don't believe him. They feel like he's tameable. I heard over and over again from former colleagues that, well, you know, once you're actually in a governing situation, you tend to moderate a lot and soften a lot. And I'm like, you're right. In a normal human being and in a normal situation, I would agree with you. But we're not we're, we can't deal with this situation like that anymore. And that well, was Ryan's mistake. And it truly troubles me that he has such an affinity for the military given all of the things that you just described and adding another, you know, high ranking former military official to the white house disturbs me when he's tweeting about consulting with my generals. Um, you know, and I just, I think that he, I have tried for so long to resist what felt very dramatic to me in terms of thinking of him as an authoritarian, but dang, all the evidence points to that, you know? Yeah. It just does. The Atlantic has this great piece about how he talks about law and order. What he likes is order without law and having someone like John Kelly at his side if John Kelly buys on to all that, that is very troubling to me. Yeah, it is. And I think ultimately, like, just all those roads lead to power for him. It's the ability he loves. I think that's why we see him tweeting these bizarre, like, firings or these changes, the the transgender um, thing that, you know, banning transgender members of the military earlier this week, which isn't a thing that he can actually do. But he's going to test that and continue to do that because what he likes is the the fact that when he says something or tweets something or decrees something, it happens. I feel like that's intoxicating. Gosh, that's such a good point because I have thought for two years now, I've told myself that he really didn't want to be president. But maybe he really did and his vision of the presidency is just at the antithesis of what I think it is. Because yeah, I, I don't you're think he right. wants to be traditionally like, he doesn't want to be presidential, no. But he does want to make decisions and have people carry out his orders. I, I can't imagine, like, just looking at the way he tweets and the way he governs, he doesn't, the only thing he cares about is what he thinks and that it happens immediately after he says it. Yeah. Well, we will step back for a second and acknowledge some good things happening before we move on to getting in touch with our representatives to express our displeasure about some of these things. So I wanted to, for compliment the other side today, um, highlight the work that Take Back Our Republic is doing. They wrote a white paper on money and politics and left it with almost every member of Congress. Patrick Leahy's office won't take 
printed materials apparently from visitors but everybody else got one (laughs) and some people read it and had meetings with take back our republic and now we have two things that i love bipartisan and bicameral proposals to address the hundreds of millions of dollars in unverified political contributions that are coming into elections. And in the House, there are 30 Democrats and 50 Republicans working together on this. In the Senate, uh, Senator Blunt from the Republican Party is working with Senators Klobuchar, Warner, and Feinstein to introduce this legislation. So I think that is a real positive for the system. I love anything bipartisan and really applaud the work of Take Back Our Republic. Love that. That's great. You know, who I want to highlight, and as I thought about this, I was so struck by Chuck Schumer this week. Yes. Um, his speech at the end of that vote, I and even before that, so, you know, everybody, you know, is doing this weird, like, body language interpretation of McCain and, like, what's happening uh, because they're not voting and couldn't figure out what was going on. And then as they voted and McCain voted no. Uh, there was a short kind of outburst from uh, Senate Democrats, and Chuck Schumer waved that down really quickly, just shut it down with a wave of his arm, and then got up after um, Mitch McConnell's very bizarre, bitter speech um, and gave just a, I thought, one of the most compelling Senate speeches after a victory that I've ever heard. Um, And I was so moved by his humility and his willingness to just address what had happened and to kind of move on from it and to not gloat in a moment when, you know, I felt, I felt, you know, kind of a twinge. It was, it was a bittersweet moment for me as a Republican because I watched something, you know, my party had proposed died, although it wasn't something I agreed with. I felt a kinship kind of to this plea to just reach across the aisle and to start from square one. Let's build something that we can all agree on and be proud of. And I, that was the type of speech that I wanted to hear from pretty much any Republican and wasn't really hearing, save for, you know, John McCain's speech earlier in the week, which was great as well. But I just thought that Mitch McC- or that uh, Chuck Schumer did a, did a wonderful job in handling that moment in a way that was not going to reflect badly on Senate Democrats, and I don't think it did. I completely agree with you. I thought he was very dignified. And, and look, it kind of goes to the point that some of our listeners made on social media, which is, it feels weird to celebrate because something horrible didn't happen. And Mm -hmm. it is good probably to just take a step back and remember that the Senate was working on healthcare legislation because the House lobbed something over that they did not want to be a law and essentially said, fix this Senate. And then the Senate starts talking about, well, let's just lob this back over to the House and say, fix this House. And, And it was, it was embarrassing how all of this happened. And a a real failure to govern. And so I appreciate that Senator Schumer kind of kept it in context um, with his remarks. So in the suit, we're going to talk about your viral tweet storm and your call the halls guide and what people should know about contacting their representatives. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. 
Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high-quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now. And there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk tops. Premium luggage options and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. So there's all this energy stirring around. What did you really want people to know when you started writing about this? I think originally what I wanted people to know was that there was a place for them to channel some of that energy. Um, I, I think that people forget that they can call their representatives. They kind of feel like, and this is the way that Washington has become, that our representatives in the House and the Senate have become celebrities and they feel unreachable. They feel like, you know, you would never call up Tom Cruise to say something about one of his movies. But you also see your representatives on TV, and in, in, in a way, it kind of feels the same. Uh, these people are unreachable. 
and so you know and also there's the idea that you know they represent anywhere from half a million to a couple million people in their districts or if we're talking senators you know then california they, they represent an entire state and that's a lot of people so what exactly does my individual voice matter in that kind of situation there's just too many people and so i may as well not call i guess and uh i just wanted people to know that there was a place for their voice and that those calls were really important Mm -hmm. because as i worked um doing that job i mean i i trained people i trained interns and i answered phones myself i saw how important those calls were and how they were uh you know taken in our, our office and also just how few people actually called we had a few regulars um, that we memorized their number, and when we saw them come up, we knew that we were going to be spending 20 minutes on the phone talking about something. But other than that, you know, there weren't a lot of people who just called to say, you know, in a couple minutes, you know, maybe, you know, 90 seconds, this is how I feel about this issue. Uh, there were a number of people, maybe more people, who would send emails. However, a lot of those people sent uh, form emails. They would just get, you know, the text from some lobbyist group and just copy and paste or they'd fill out the form on their website and it would send it to us. There just wasn't a lot of personal contact happening. And uh, even, you know, at town halls, most of the time we'd have maybe 50 to 100 people show up to town hall meeting. And this is, you know, in an urban area. Uh, I mean, relatively urban for Utah. Uh, there were a lot more people who would show up, obviously, if we, if we were in Salt Lake City because that's our, you know, main population center. Um, but the, the difference was, is for instance, during health, the healthcare debate in 2010, uh, we had a town hall meeting that 1,700 people showed up for. Um, and that was like a huge deal. These people had never really done much with uh, citizen activism or anything like that were showing up to town hall meetings. That was a big deal. Um, people were calling our office. This happened a lot also during that, the cap and trade uh, debate that was happening. I want to say in like early 2009, uh, late 2009, I can't remember exactly when, but there were a couple of moments like that where people would get really energized or maybe they'd get energized about immigration and we get a ton of calls about that. And we'd immediately have to kind of formulate a response or something to say to these people. And we'd have to really start thinking about how we were messaging, what we were doing and whether or not the approach we were taking was the right one. And these types of things were very, very important. They weren't the only thing that shaped our opinion, but they definitely did shape our opinion. And I think that the takeaway that I wanted people to understand was that, you know, don't forget this mode of communication. Do not forget to contact your representatives. Don't waste your time calling the White House. They don't care. And there's too many people, but the people who are on the ground for you are your members of the House of Representatives and the Senate, and you need to go after them. And that's a point that you made right out of the gate, that you want to call your district office, not D.C. Yeah, and I think you can call D.C. and there's nothing wrong. I think either one's okay. It's just that often the D.C. lines will get overloaded. The the switchboard will uh, get overloaded quickly. And the district office is a great place to call. That's where I worked. We took messages just the same as as DC did. You can also um, build more of a relationship with those uh, district staffers. They tend to be members of your community. Uh, I lived in the district where I worked, and uh, so did my, my, my colleagues and most of the other people who were in our delegation. 
And they had, you know, really, we had really strong ties to Utah and deeply cared. Not that DC people don't, but you kind of get in a weird, I don't know, they get in a weird tunnel over there (laughs) in DC. And they just kind of forget what it's like to live out not in the district, you know? And Mm -hmm. so living in, in the state is really, I think, one of the pluses of having a district office. Now, you mentioned regulars. So I have a feeling that a lot of our listeners are becoming regulars. Does that make them more or less credible to the people answering those phones? Well, I think it just depends on what you're saying. The regulars I'm talking about wanted to talk about chemtrails and that the Utah National Guard and the U.S. Army was poisoning people with airplane uh, exhaust. Basically, they were they were putting some chemical in the to control us. That's what I mean by regular, you know, regulars. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have something intelligent and like reasonable and uh, important and timely to say, then no, like that's not a big deal. Um, I also think I, I warn people against doing what I call, or actually, this is this is not something I made up, but something that we did training with the the Capitol Police and the person who was training us called them speeches speeches of a lifetime. Um, where they call and they're like so excited to get a warm body on the phone that they go off for 15 minutes without taking a breath, without even wondering if the other person is listening on the other end of the line or pretty much anything. And they just kind of go off for 15 minutes. Sometimes it's profane, sometimes it's not. Um, but either way, when you are having a one co- one-sided conversation for that long, you kind of tune out. Mm-hmm. Do you, so that gets to a question that I have. When I call, am I trying to add to a tally of numbers, pro or con, on an issue? Or is sharing a story a helpful aspect of making that call? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. But the research that I read, the Congressional, Mo- the Congressional Management Foundation has done some research on this, uh, looking at how calls are received by members of Congress and their staff and what works. And so they actually have, you know, some some good numbers to share that are more than anecdotal. And it seems that for the most part, a personalized story that is unique and timely will always be more important than just a tally. Uh, it's, it's something that kind of connects the person on the other end of the phone or your representative to what's actually happening which is ultimately like what they should be doing. They should be trying to understand how current policy and current legislation is affecting people in their districts or in their states. That, that is the, that is what, you know, when you strip it down to its bare bones, that's what a representative is. Um, And so the best way to do that is to share your story and make it unique and individual and make it timely and kind of explain where your situation fits in with what they're doing. Uh, however, I know that there are a lot of reasons why someone would want to either keep a phone call very brief or, you know, not want to share a personal story. And in that case, like adding to a tally, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I would encourage people who feel like they have the capacity to do that to kind of stretch a little bit and to move beyond scripts and to kind of bring in some of their own life and energy into that because it will stick a little more with whoever's answering the phone. Um, and it will, it will just kind of add more nuance to the conversation than just saying I'm for or against something. So when you got 
a, a set of calls. What did you do with that information? Uh, for the most part, what we did is we would log it and we'd log it in a spreadsheet and we usually, you know, log the issue, uh, you know, their feelings on it, usually for or against kind of like the tally situation. And then a couple comments and every month uh, I would, it will, depending, I mean, if it was a really hot issue that was happening right then we tally every day, but usually on a, you know, when things were running the way that they normally did, I'd, I'd tally them all you know, put them together once a month and put together kind of a executive summary for my boss with a few comments and, you know, kind of a, a graph or a pie chart, some type of data visualization of what people were calling about, where were they calling from, uh, you know, were they for or against an issue, that type of thing. And so that's kind of how we used a lot of that information for phone calls. Um, for emails and for letters, the process worked a little differently. Uh, we could still run reports and all kinds of things on those on that correspondence, but also the priority was to make sure that those people got a response. So if they were sending an email, we need to make sure that we had an appropriate email drafted to respond to them that was related to the topic that they'd emailed about um, or a letter, you know, something that would go back to them. So that was part of the, the, the conversation as well as how do we write something that appeals to most of the people who have written about this topic and, you know, how do we get that out in a timely manner? Can you, I'm guessing that this probably did not happen a lot to you, but, but tell me if it did. I'm, I'm imagining being in one of these offices now where most Republican representatives are voting contrary to the volume of calls that they're receiving you know, there were lots of reports on different senators who had, you know, 90% negative on BCRA, right? And yet they mm -hmm. still voted with, with the majority. Um, can you imagine what the conversations look like in those offices and how those decisions are calculated? We hear a lot of, um, with town halls, people kind of explaining it away with like, well, these were out of district people. Um, but I'm just wondering from your perspective what that probably looks like. Uh, it's got, I mean, I don't know. To be honest, that never happened <laughs> in the yeah. offices I worked in. Because when I worked there, initially the house was um, in the minority. So most people that were, and I'm in a deeply red district. Uh, you have to understand that both of the members I worked for, especially, so I worked for, I'll, I'll I mean, people will be able to find this out, but I, I initially worked for Jason Chaffetz, who has recently resigned. Um, and he was the first representative I worked for. And uh, that the district in which is still the district that I live in right now is very Republican, very conservative. And so people overall just really liked anything that was opposing uh, President Obama's agenda. Therefore, we just didn't get a whole lot of calls from people who were upset. And also, you know, I mean, he'd win re-election, you know, with a, you know, 20, 30 point spread. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just wasn't even close. So um, that that just didn't happen all that often. Uh, things changed a little bit when I worked for Congressman Stewart because he represented, represented the Salt Lake City metro area, uh, which is uh, pretty liberal, uh, heavily Democrat. And so we'd get a lot of calls from Salt Lake and they'd feel uh, they would feel like they weren't represented. Absolutely. And um, I imagine what a lot of I, I think, you know, just kind of 
guessing how people would feel about this or what the conversation would look like. I imagine it, it honestly has to involve a lot of cognitive dissonance. Mm. Um, because when you're getting that many calls against something, I don't, you know, I tend to, I think, you know, a lot of people immediately jump to, well, it's fundraising money, which, you know, might be part of it, but that isn't really a conversation we ever had in our offices. I think a lot of it is party loyalty. I think it it goes a lot more to they want to please Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell than they do donors. You don't really want to rock the boat too much because you might lose out on prime, uh, you know, chairmanships or, you know, positions on committees that you really want to be on. Or it might cost you something when you have a vote that you really do care about. Um, And so it's very difficult to have a lot of moral fortitude within your own party and to dissent within your own party when you have that kind of power that's being leveraged. And I imagine that's what a lot of it is, is that you just kind of uh, either trust or hope that Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell is going to do the right thing and make something that works. Um, And you feel a little bit powerless to buck that trend too much, which seems ridiculous considering that they're, you know, representatives and a lot of people listening will probably be like, well, what's the point? And I totally agree. But it's just difficult. It's why when you see people like Collins or, or Murkowski dissenting, that that is so important because it really just takes one or two to kind of break up that group think and to allow people the opportunity to switch if they need to. You know, Cornell Belcher was on Meet the Press talking about healthcare and how a majority of senators and congressional representatives could sit down and come up with a plan to improve on the Affordable Care Act. But it's not a majority of the majority. And yes. that gave me that moment of like, what's the point? You know, because I thought if, if truly, if you could just put the partisanship behind everybody and get to good solutions, how crazy is this? It's like we're living in a made up world with made up rules that only hurt people. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's incredibly frustrating. I can understand why people would feel disenfranchised by a system that operates so heavily in this in this alternate reality. Um, however, I think that the ultimately your greatest power lies in your vote. Um, and the reason why I told people to call the representatives was not because I feel like that's the best thing. That's like the second best thing, or maybe the third best thing. The best thing is to make it count when you vote and to vote every single election. Mm-hmm. Municipal and off election years are so important and you cannot skip them because you need to find people who are going to be become the majority that want to work across the aisle. Because what's happening is that in primaries, more radical candidates are being chosen. And they believe that they have a mandate to go and stick it to the opposite party. And that is their mantra. And the thing that they, that's like their affirmation that they recite in the morning is anything but, you know, what the Democrats want or anything but what the, but what the Republicans want. And we've become, you know, we've allowed people to go represent us that are not willing to be more bipartisan or more thoughtful about what they're doing. 
because they they know that you know they could get primaried by somebody who's more extreme and they could lose their seat and that is a terrifying prospect and those are the you know that's why it's so important to stay engaged at all levels and to to actively find and recruit people who are going to be more thoughtful because otherwise you know there just isn't a lot of incentive to dissent you'll you'll lose and and that's the thing that scares i think politicians the most is losing re-election. So you have been kind of a leading expert on contacting Congress for the six months that it felt like an eternity in which President Trump has been in office. Have you seen um, any shifts from your time, uh, you know, other than just the sheer volume and the level of engagement? Have you seen any shifts? For example, um, we have a listener who wrote to us about using ResistBot to contact representatives. It seems like there are lots of services out there um, to help people get their messages through. What comments would you have on those types of services and how people are using them? Um, I think, you know, if you want to use ResistBot, that's fine. I I feel like faxing, I wouldn't do it. I And, you know, ultimately, like, if that's the only way you're going to do it, that's the only thing that's going to get you to do it, then I'm not going to discourage you from doing it. Um, but faxes are received pretty much the same way emails are these days. They go into an email inbox. They aren't printed. So they're not all that disruptive. Um, they kind of just sit there in that email box until someone can go through and, and sort them. Uh, whereas phone calls are just more immediate, which is kind of why I like them. They're a low-touch, immediate uh, response kind of way to get a feel for who's in the office and also, I think, makes you feel a little bit more engaged. I'm not all that interested in finding easy ways out because I know that that's just, like, we're going to kind of have to dig a little deeper uh, to make things happen than just to find what's the easiest thing I can do. Um, What's the fastest, most instant American thing I can think of to to make change happen? Uh, So ResistBot's okay. And there are a lot of tools I like. You know, Five five Calls is great for the most part. Um, I haven't seen anything recently from them that I object to. Sometimes you just have to be careful. Make sure that they're not telling you to call somebody who's not your representative. I know that Flippable has a lot of things that they do too that are great to kind of give you an idea of what to call about or what to say, as well as you know any other apps that connect you to your representative are good. However, I think the thing that is truly missing from this equation, and I wrote about it a few months ago, is that Congress just does not have the capacity to listen on a large scale. They, they, their, their communication strategies are not scalable, uh, and they haven't been for many, many years. As the population has increased, staff and budgets have remained stagnant. So they're running, you know, in a district, in a, in a congressional office like I worked in, most had about a dozen staff. And they didn't just answer calls. Those weren't people just answering calls. Those were people like writing legislation. Like that includes our chief of staff. And so with a staff that small, it's almost impossible to listen to everybody. Um, And so I think what I would really like to see, and I don't know, you know, maybe some of your listeners will have a solution. Maybe there's something else. What I really like is to see some channeling of all of the technical talent that we have in this country to figure out how we make it easier for Congress to listen to people. Not necessarily just for people to contact their representatives, which is great. There are so many tools to do that, like you mentioned. But how can we make this more transparent and scalable for these offices so that it requires less like individual work from them, 
but they can see at a glance how many people are calling, how many people are writing about something. And everybody can see that. Like other people in the district could see who, how many of my neighbors are calling. Uh, what are they calling about? What are my neighbors interested in too? And to kind of have that data to understand almost like a bipartisan or uh, grassroots polling system that kind of goes from the ground up, I think would be wonderful and a way to kind of break through some of those barriers and walls that, that Congress is experiencing right now with listening. Because that's the biggest hurdle I see right now is that they just don't have the resources they need to listen to people as they call. I really agree with that. And I love that point. One, from two Republicans, I think it's a pretty nuanced take that we need to invest more heavily in our democratic processes. You know, I think all the time about how being a Republican doesn't mean that we spend zero dollars or that we pay zero percent in taxes, you know. I think that it might really reduce partisanship to develop those scalable listening mechanisms for Congress, like you're talking about. So I love that idea. Final, final words of wisdom on effectively interacting with your representatives. I think what you said about voting is so good. And um, is there anything else that you just really want people to know? Um, You know, start wherever you are at. Don't feel like you have to. I know that, you know, we have, there are people with disabilities or anxieties about the phone. If you can't call, that's okay. Send an email or use ResistBot or whatever else you feel like you're comfortable with. Start there. But ultimately, like, continue to stretch yourself into spaces and into uh, places where you are able to make a difference. What I really hope and ultimately, like, my master plan with all of this is that I want an electorate and a constituency that is plugged in and cares about what's happening in their government and feels invested in it and works to, you know, people who are calling and writing letters now, I want to run for boards and commissions later or to run for their city council. Uh, I want them to join activist groups that are part of issues that they truly care about and are kind of filling up the ranks of these people who have been doing this hard work forever and they're building on that expertise and kind of providing the the grunt work to some of these organizations that really, really do good work. And then ultimately, like, run for office to, you know, get more people who are deeply invested in the process and feel connected enough to what's happening that they say, you know what, I can do this. And they do. And they show up and they run for office or they find friends that are, you know, good, uh, thoughtful people to run for office. And at that point, the whole system starts to change and it starts to work uh, because people feel invested in it and like they're ready to take the next step to kind of take control of of their government. Because ultimately, like, there's just nothing. I, I think I imagine, you know, what would happen if we had just a general population that cared that deeply and think of all the things that we could get done. And it's just astounding. Amen. I feel like I've been to church. I love it. (laughs) All right. Up next in the heels, we are going to talk about being introverts. I saw you tweet about being an introvert a couple weeks ago, and I was so happy because I've taken the Myers-Briggs about 50 times, and every time... I am an INFJ and it's like not 
kind of oh in between gosh, on too. any. Are you really an INFJ? <laughs> yes. There are so few of us in the world, right? <laughs> there are so few, but I seem to always find them. I'm like a magnet <laughs> to INFJs. My husband is an INFJ as well. I love it. And I'm like decisively all of those. There are none where I'm a little this or that. No, I am all the way INFJ. And I think, you know, so when I saw that you were talking about being an introvert, I was like, gosh, I wonder what that tweet storm taking off was like for her because suddenly you were thrust into the public light and and I just would love to know like what's it been like for you yeah so um it it was incredibly overwhelming at first in fact I have as an introvert I have I don't have a lot of friends but I have a, a core group of very very close friends and initially like they were bringing me meals because I was so overwhelmed that and it wasn't even that I was busy. It was like that I would sit there and reflect on the magnitude of the situation and almost be unable to function because I was so overwhelmed by what I felt was a responsibility and a duty to do the right thing um, and to live up, not necessarily even live up to expectations, but to properly inspire people that it was almost debilitating. Um, it's just not something that I handle all that well. I've gotten a lot better at it, um, you know, kind of venting to friends or trying to figure out ultimately, like, what do I want out of it? How do I figure out what's next? And that I'm in control of that. And that it's not something that's happening outside of my control and that I can take control at any moment and do what I feel like I need to do. Um, so that has been, it was overwhelming initially. It's gotten a lot better. Um, I, I can role play being an extrovert pretty well uh for the most part i don't have a problem public speaking i can do that pretty easily um, i can even do impromptu or you know extemporaneous speaking quite well uh part of that is because i worked for congress for six years and had to do that pretty often and you just kind of have to you just have to figure it out um and so I, i've gotten pretty good at that and it doesn't it doesn't bother me all that much where my true introversion comes in, though, is that those types of interactions really exhaust me. I can do a couple public speaking. Like, I can do maybe one. If I have more than two a week, um, I feel I, I have to spend a day in bed because I'm so tired and so exhausted that I just I don't want anyone to come see me or talk to me. Um, and I need, like, a moment to either read a book or to think or to kind of decompress and let out all of that energy that has like basically been absorbed by, by doing any kind of speaking or answering a lot of questions or talking a lot. It's, I am a hundred percent the same way. And I, the podcast has been such a weird journey for me because I still feel like an introvert, like having the conversations that I have with Sarah or like we're having now, they don't exhaust me, right? This is the kind of thing that I enjoy. And so I'm, it's easy for me to forget that people are listening yeah. When, when I realized, yeah, because you're not having to look at people per se, you can kind of, which is why like for me writing and those types of things come quite easily because of that. Well, exactly. And I feel like I'm really comfortable being very vulnerable in those discussions. And I promised myself that when we started, like, there's no point in doing something like this if you're going to censor yourself. So I promised up front to just talk with my friend and let whomever tunes in to hear it, hear it. It is only when I realize that people are hearing it that I get kind of 
freaked out by it. And I have the same kind of reaction. Like when Elle magazine featured us this week and I saw it on my phone, I got super hot. Every time we get good news, I get hot. Like, oh my gosh. And then I just have this really overwhelmed sense and it's, it's wonderful. And it's also, it just kind of takes all my energy off balance. I was walking the other night and I passed one of my neighbors and he was like, Hey, my friends and I really like your podcast. And it kind of, it was awesome. And I so appreciate it. And hi, Chad, if you're listening, but I also was like, Oh my God, like it just reminded people me. Listen? Yeah, yeah. It reminded me that all these people know me now in a way that I don't know them back. Even people who I see every day and interact with in a certain way, know me differently because of this than they would know me otherwise because I am an introvert, you know, and it's just, um, I would imagine that your the internet is a weird thing because of that, right? It gives you this space to put yourself out there in this way that you would not in a room full of people. And yes. then the consequences of that are so different than they would be in a room full of people. Yeah, absolutely. I know, like, for instance, I was at something non-political related, but someone, um, I was I was chatting with somebody and they said, oh, you're the one who had those viral tweets. And, you know, I read, uh, I read about you in the New York Times. And there was kind of that moment where I was like, oh, yeah, that happened, um, <laughs> you know. And I, uh, but the truth is, is that, like, thankfully, it's about something that I deeply care about. Um, and so I feel like, that is something that as an introvert, I hate small talk. I don't like talking about inconsequential things. I don't like talking or I, I remember telling somebody on uh, my previous employer at one of our sales people. And I told them that one of the hard things for me at trade shows and stuff like that is that I, I'm expected to pretend uh, or I'm expected to care about people's inconsequential things in their lives. Like I'm expected to remember like where they're from or where they went to school or what their kid's name is or like those types of things that um, I'm not very good at remembering. And they're very difficult for me to remember. Oh yeah. I, I remember I need to ask about the weather or I need to ask about their kids or their family, or I need to ask something to kind of keep this conversation going. And that's incredibly exhausting. But if someone's read my stuff or is interested in that type of thing, we easily have something to talk about that I care about and that they care about. And we have kind of this mutual thing that we can immediately start out on a topic uh, that has some depth. And I love that. That's what I love about having this kind of happen and people recognizing me for that is that we can kind of connect on that level. It takes out some of that small talk type of thing and moves us into a discussion that I'm more comfortable and at ease in. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earth Breeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And 
even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, God, I love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off EarthBreeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I... I do a lot of interviewing in my professional life, and I got this uh, bulletin the other day by email that said the most important interview question you can ask to make sure that you have someone who's not going to flatline in their job performance is what are you passionate about? And if they answer something like, my kids, my dog, my wife, my husband, like you need to get rid of that person in your process <laughs> because they're not going to have, they're going to be a one dimensional person for you. And that sounds so callous, but I completely get it because all of those things are super important in my life, but I also get that they're not important in the life of the person sitting across the table from me. And I do want to connect with other human beings past sort of our baseball cards you know yeah yeah I agree and I, I think that those types of things like, like as an introvert I uh, you know and this is I did the Myers-Briggs 
only a couple years ago and finally realized that I was introverted. I just kind of thought that I was a terrible extrovert because I can do like these public speaking and these things like I can do them. I'm not plagued, for instance, by shyness per se. Like in most situations, I'm actually pretty gregarious and you wouldn't really recognize it unless you knew me pretty well. For instance, people will be able to tell that I'm an introvert because I flake a lot on social engagements. Well, any kind of engagement, really. Like, it's very difficult to pin me down to go to lunch or to do an appointment because I'm pretty good at flaking out and finding an excuse not to do it um, because it it's something maybe I don't have energy for at that point um, and, and have to do something else until, at, you know, and, and people who don't know introverts kind of feel like that's rude and it probably is really rude. I'm working on it. But, um, you know, you, you get that, that that's where my ex or my introversion really kind of shows is that I do prefer some uh, some form of isolation. A lot of the time I like to work from home at least a few days a week. Uh, I like to have just a few groups of friends that we don't really actually hang out in person all that often. But when we do, we really enjoy our, each other's company and we're all OK to duck out whenever we feel like it. I love extroverts who understand that, too. Um, Sarah and I spent a week together in Philadelphia at the Democratic National Convention. And Sarah is pure extrovert, and she's amazing in a situation like that. She works the room. She knows everybody. If she doesn't know them, they'll know her before we leave. You know, and she's just, she lights up the room. She's so good at it. And you can tell, it's it's almost like you can physically see her um, like a Mario character, like getting bigger with every one of these conversations, uh-huh. you know, it's just feeding her. And, and it was amazing for me to watch. And it's so highlighted for me, you know, the difference between us in that way. But she's really also understanding of the fact that it has exactly the opposite impact on me. And that really yeah. what I need is like to go sit somewhere with my computer by myself for a few minutes and just put my feet on the ground and reset. Yeah. And one other thing that I wanted to say about like the introversion extroversion was that as I was, cause I just, I actually just finished reading uh, the book quiet by Susan. Yes. By Susan Cain. So I listened to it on audio and I just finished it this week and I actually finished it right up before they did the, the healthcare vote. And I was, I was listening to it or as I finished and as I was watching the healthcare vote, I was like, this is a product of extroversion, extroverted leadership. Oh, you have, you have a group of people who are incredibly extroverted and the loudest voices are the ones being heard right now. And no one is stopping these extroverts to say, is this really what you want? Or is this really the, the best plan of action? Because I think if you took each of those people individually and got them to sit down and said, what do you like about this bill? They wouldn't be able to answer that. And it isn't something any of them are proud of. Then why are they all voting for it? And it's just, it's a product of having a lot of extroverted thinkers who are not bad people by any means, or not even bad leaders or bad legislators. But the fact that we have that in our government, the way that it works is that more extroverted people, more gregarious people, more loud people tend to get elected. And then when they all get in a room, it's a rush to, to see who can get whatever done the fastest or the loudest. And, and introverts kind of don't really make it very far into that process. And that was something I observed, you know, just this week as I was watching that vote. 
I totally agree with that. You know, whenever Sarah and I talk about our own political involvement uh, beyond doing the podcast, I always say I'd love to be somebody's number two. You know, I'd love to be somebody's chief of staff or someone's press secretary. And she always says all women say that, right? They want to be behind the scenes instead of being the candidate. But it's you ought to be the candidate. And I really think that that for me is less a function of gender than of this introversion versus extroversion thing. I can't imagine myself being the candidate ever. Yeah, absolutely. And I've said that over and over. I'm actually doing some campaign work right now for our special election because uh, Congressman Chaffetz resigned. We now have an open seat. And so we have a primary going on here in, in, in my district. And I've been campaigning for a candidate who is incredible, who is introverted. He's just, he's very introverted. And I've been so excited about his campaign because of that, because he has all those qualities that extroverts have. And I've told people, we need more extroverts in Congress. We need more extroverts in government in, and in leadership positions. And yet at the same time, I feel like such a hypocrite because people then say, well, when are you running? And I'm like, oh man, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding me? I'm not going to go run for office. I'd, I, you know, I'd be happy to do more constituent work for somebody or, you know, do something like that. That'd be, that'd be okay. Like I'd be okay doing that, but I'm not going to run for office. And I feel like knowing, you know, just kind of taking a step back and looking at the whole picture, I feel like that's doing myself a disservice and it's something I should consider more seriously uh, and and not let the fact that I'm introverted kind of get in the way just because I know how important that is and how much I like people in leadership positions who are introverted. There are several people here, uh, you know, in Utah, I can think of several leaders who are introverted in high leadership positions that I just respect so highly and think that we need more, more of that in our government and, you know, you know, appreciate their example so much. It's like everything else. I think we do just need more balance. You know, we need more of a balance of women, of people with um, experiences that differ from the experiences of that have been predominant in our legislature for so long. And and we need more of a balance of introverts there, too. So I wholeheartedly agree. I think you should run. I'd be happy to work for you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, probably not my time right now, but I am going to think more seriously about it now, having listened to that book and kind of seen what's going on that you're right. Like, ultimately, like, I had always attributed it to my gender. I'd always thought, well, maybe it's just because I'm a woman, but I honestly think it's way more about the fact that I'm introverted and I feel like people would not appreciate that or like that about me um, because I'm not I'm not very loud and bombastic and I'm not very extreme in my views. I tend to be pretty moderate and uh, I do a lot of listening rather than talking. And that's been difficult in a lot of areas of my life. It's been very difficult for people who are extroverted in my personal relationships. My relationships with family have been strained because of that. Um, for instance, um, I, I, I grew up and I still am Mormon, but I, I left activity from the church, uh, the Mormon church a few years ago. It's very difficult for my family to understand that because I've kept that process so private. It's not something I shared with a lot of people about why I was doing it. I just kind of came out with the decision because I didn't feel comfortable explaining that to a lot of people. And that's been very difficult for my immediate family to kind of understand. Uh, most of them are extroverted and they 
they wanted to know why they wanted to ask a lot of questions and they weren't questions I was comfortable with. Um, it's also been difficult just in my work relationships. I've had, I've worked in a lot of pretty much every, I think now that I think of it, every, uh, career I've chosen up to this point has been a lot of extroverts. Politics is very extroverted. People who work in politics are very extroverted. There are very few of us who are introverted. And then I went into marketing and marketing is also a very extroverted career. And so a lot of the workplaces I've been in have just kind of built their systems and built their teams around this expectation of what an extrovert is. And it's been very difficult to kind of um, now that I know what what I am or that I have an idea of like how my personality works and that it's not necessarily a bad thing or a flaw, I've been able to kind of manage that a little better to kind of ease the gap between the extrovert introvert thing. But still, it's been it's been really, really difficult. You know, I think that that is a, a kind of a beautiful summary of of this quality. It's not a limiting factor. I think it just requires a different kind of unfolding of your life. And that's certainly what I'm experiencing right now. Just an unfolding of, okay, I keep it all pretty close to the chest, except in certain spaces that feel good to me, but I can start to deliberately and on my own schedule expand those spaces. Yeah, absolutely. Emily, tell everyone where they can find you. Yeah, so I am on Twitter. Uh, That's where I spend, well, if I'm on social media, that's where I spend a lot of my time. Um, I've been taking breaks because sometimes Twitter can get a little bit out of hand. But you can find me on there at Editor Emily E. That's my handle. Um, you can find me. Um, I have a, if you want to download my book, it's free. Um, or you can donate however much you'd like. I kind of leave that completely up to you. You can put $0. You can put $10. And you can download that at callthehallsguide.com. It's just a PDF that goes through pretty much everything I talked about today but a little bit more in depth about how those uh, calls and emails and, you know, things are, are tallied and considered and a lot of FAQs. Um, I'm on Medium as well, and that's where I publish a lot of my, uh, you know, kind of topics or, you know, things I care about related to civic engagement. And that can be found, uh, my Medium handle is Emily Ellsworth. So you can just search for me on there or just do the medium.com forward slash at Emily Ellsworth. Those are the best places to find me, um, but I'd love to, you know, hear from anybody who has additional questions or, you know, kind of wants to chat. You can, like I said, hit me up on social media or download my book or whatever you'd like. Well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for being here today. I could talk to you forever, and I really enjoyed having you here. Well, thank you again so much for having me. It was such an honor, and I really enjoyed our conversation as well. Thank you so much to Emily, to our executive producer, Nicholas, also Tracy, Leslie, and Sabrina. We will be back with you on Friday when I have another special guest sitting in Sarah's chair. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.